If you want to go ahead and start turning your Bibles, Matthew 13, we're going to be in verses 24 through 52 tonight. Last week, we did really the first half of Matthew 13, which is all of Matthew 13 is one big sermon that Jesus gave. Um, Big is relative, right? It's not as big as the Sermon on the Mount, which was three chapters. This is one chapter. But what Jesus did in one sermon is taking me two, and so I'll be finishing it tonight. And since it's just one sermon, really, I'm going to reuse the same introduction. I'm going to try to get you to go back and remember that last week I was here, I, talked to you, I told you about the Pew Research Group who did a survey, and they found that in the last seven years, from 2007 to 2014, there was a 7 or 8% drop in people who identified themselves as Christians in America. So Christianity in America, according to this Pew Research Group, is in a decline. And so I told you last week that about every single person who has a blog on Christian things decided to weigh in. What does this mean? And people, a lot of people were writing things like, well, Christians, we just need to change our methods. We need to talk different or reach a new group. And there were a lot of ideas like that. And we looked at last week, Jesus said, it's not my methods that are the issue. There were some people, though, whose their bigger problem, they see this as even more devastating. I think they were a little over the top, but they, they looked at this as the beginning of the end of Christianity. Christianity is over in America you went from 78% to 70%, and so you might as well start making your own coffins here. Christianity is over. And I, they, they're wrapped up. I think it's good for us to get back and, and put ourselves there because I think that might have been the fear that the disciples are wrestling with. Right? So the disciples, they're not, they don't have the Pew Christian Research Group, but what they do have is they've been walking with Jesus for a long time, and Jesus has been saying, I'm setting up a kingdom here. But at every turn, especially in the last three chapters, Jesus is just getting rejected over and over and over. Jesus is rejected by the towns of Chorazin and Bethsaida, and Jesus completely rejected. And he says, woe to you. I wasn't rejected like this. He says, if if Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented, they're, they're more righteous than you. But, um, if they had seen the signs I'd done, they would have turned and repent. But you guys have seen me and you rejected me anyway. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they rejected Jesus. Over and over, he's getting rejected. And the disciples, I think, are starting to get a little bit freaked out. Maybe this kingdom isn't going to happen. Maybe we put all our hopes in this guy who says, I'm the king, and he's just not a very good king. He can't even get any followers. The rest of the, the parables in Matthew 13, Jesus, I think, uses to assure these disciples, look, I have it under control. I'm the king, and this is my kingdom. It's not going to look like you think, but you need to trust me anyway. In fact, what we're going to see is there's uh, six parables. There's really seven left, but there's six parables that are little couplets. There are two parables that each one of them say basically the same thing in a different way. And each time, he's going to give us another reason to trust him. He's going to say, you can trust me because I'm the king, and I am going to call everybody into account at the end. Right now, it looks like there's a bunch of people who don't believe in me, and they're enemies of the king and my kingdom. He goes, but at the end, 
the king will judge all enemies of his kingdom. You can trust me. He says, you can trust me. The second set of couplets, the second two parables say, you can trust me because right now it looks like there's no followers. But in the end, you'll see this kingdom is going to be big. This kingdom is going to go throughout the whole world. You can trust me. This kingdom is small now, but it's growing. And the last one, the last couplet, he says, you can trust me. And the reason you can trust me is because the reward of following me is great. He says, there's going to be sacrifices, but no sacrifice will amount to anything compared to the greatness of what you get for being in my kingdom. So those are our three big ideas. Our three big ideas as we walk through the passage tonight is we want to see Jesus as the king and his kingdom is beginning. And we want to see that so that we will trust him. We'll trust him when we are surrounded by enemies, people who won't follow him. We'll say, I'll trust Jesus anyway. When we see that we're in a place where we're the only Christian, or there's hardly anybody around that knows Jesus, we'll say, I can trust him anyway. When we are suffering, when we're being rejected because we're Christians, we can say, I can trust him anyway. Let's read the passage together. It's Matthew 13. Verse 24 is where I'll start, and we'll read through 52. And listen to hear how we can trust Jesus in those three ways. Verse 24, he says, He presented them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were uh, sleeping, his enemy came. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. While people were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and he left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's slaves came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and gather them up? The slaves asked him. No, he said. When you gather up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At the harvest time, I'll tell the reapers. Gather the weeds first and tie them into bundles and burn them, but store the wheat in my barn. He presented them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when it's grown, it's taller than all the vegetables and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and rest in its branches. He told them another parable that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour I'm sorry, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until it spread through all of it. Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables, and he would not speak anything to them without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. He dismissed the crowds, and he went to the house His disciples approached him and said, explain the parable of the weeds in the field to us. He replied, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are the angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom everything that causes sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone who has ears, let him listen. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. It's buried in a field that a man found and reburied. And then in his joy, he sells everything he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who in search for the fine pearls, when he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and he bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish, and when it was full, they dragged it ashore and sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but threw out the worthless ones. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out, separate evil people from the righteous, and throw them into the blazing furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then he says, have you understood all these things? Yes, they told him. Therefore, he said to them, Every student of Scripture instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who brings out of his storeroom what is new and what is old. When he finished, uh, when Jesus finished these parables, he left there. That's a lot. Let's ask God to help us understand. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the stories that can bring to life complicated material. But we also recognize that as we learned last week, these stories can fall deaf to our ears if we don't have the ears to hear. So we ask that you send your spirit right now to penetrate our hearts and our minds, to open, uh, open my mind and my ability to speak as I try to proclaim these in a clear and understandable way. More than that, I ask that your spirit penetrates all of our hearts to teach us to respond and to apply these words rightly to our lives so that we can be better servants of you. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right, that was a lot, wasn't it? There were six parables, really a seventh one that we'll see, but six that were each in couplets. And it's kind of a little bit confusing because you would expect couplets would be like one, one, two, two, three, three. But the way Jesus ordered these, he did the first parable, and then two more, there were a couple. So it was one, two, two. Then he went back to explain the first one. One, three, three, and then the last couplet. So one, two, two, one, three, three, one. And it made it kind of hard to read. But what I'm going to do as we break them back down together is I'm going to go couplet by couplet. We'll do one and we'll put all, all of those together. Then we'll go to two and we'll put those two together in the, thir- the third couplet. We'll put them. So that way you can kind of understand why is he going a little bit out of order here? Because... I'm going to go by the couplets, the way these parables go together. And we'll start with the first one. There were two parables that went together. The first one were the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds. And the second was the one of the fishing nets, right? And both of these parables, I think Jesus is just saying, trust me. At the end of the age, when it's all said and done, I'm going to deal with my enemies, Trust me. You can trust me when it's all said and done. I'm going to take care of my enemies. I think to understand why he would tell us this, it might be helpful for us to back up a little bit and think, what's going on? How, what are they thinking? What are the disciples feeling? And why would Jesus need this parable to help them out here? And my thought is, the disciples are probably thinking, what kind of king is this guy? What kind of king is Jesus? I'll, um, I'll make an embarrassing confession to you that I love to watch a TV show uh, called Merlin. 
<laughs> it's, all, it's the corniest TV show in the whole wide world. It's all about King Arthur and Merlin, and he's setting up his kingdom. And whenever you have, I, I like the books too, but that's less embarrassing than the TV show. Anyway, the, um, he's setting up his kingdom, and Uther is the dad, right? He's, he's Arthur's dad. He's teaching him how to be the king of Camelot. And Uther has a principle that is, I think, basically like all kings. He says, once somebody raises up against me, they're going to the gallows, right? They're losing their head. You can't be an insurrectionist in a kingdom and think the king's going to turn a blind eye to that. Kings don't do that, right? It's one thing to have armies against a king. That's one thing. He says a whole other thing. When you're in a kingdom and you have people that reject the king right in that kingdom, the king says, off of your head. We cannot have Benedict Arnold's running around. We can't have traitors in our kingdom. If you are in my kingdom, it's all or none. You're following me or you're out of here. And if you don't do that, Uther would have said, you're a weak king. You won't win anybody's respect if you let insurrectionists walk around in your kingdom. And I think that's what the disciples are thinking. Jesus, you say you're the king and you walk into this kingdom here and everybody's rejecting you and you don't seem to be doing anything about it. Is he a weak king? Why won't Jesus, if he's the king, assert his authority and say, you guys are going to bow your knee right now because I'm the king. What's going on with Jesus? Is he weak? And Jesus says, let me give you two stories. And maybe these two stories can help you understand that I am a king, but I operate different than the kings you've come to know. I operate a lot differently. He says, I'm, a, I'm like a king. I am a king. He says, but I operate more like a, a farmer in some ways. So you can imagine a farmer who goes out and he sows wheat into his field and he's expecting this awesome crop. He says, but there's an evil person who comes in and he sows weeds in there, tares. He's expecting this to ruin the farmer's crop. Now a king would come in and he would do just what all the slaves said. Well, let's go pull all these weeds out. That's what you would expect from a king. But Jesus says, as a farmer, I said, no, I don't want to destroy my crop. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to let the weeds and the wheat grow side by side. And that way, not a single wheat will be destroyed. He says, I'm a king, but I have the wisdom and the patience of a farmer here. He explains his story. Jesus says he explains it in the, in the second little section, right after the second couplet. He says, the king, the sower, the farmer, says, that's Jesus. He says, I've come out to get wheat. And wheat is anybody that will follow me. He says, but I am in a kingdom. I'm in a field that is shared by somebody else right now, an evil person. It's the devil. And he is out to destroy my crop. And what he's doing is sowing bad seed. So the options that the king has is he could say, I'm taking up all of it right now. I'm going, to exit, I'm going to act like a king. And anything that looks like a tear is coming down. He says, or I can act like a farmer, and I'll let them grow up together. And then when you can see the fruit, when you can see what's going on, then I'll separate them so not to lose a single grain of wheat. He says, that's the way I'm going to operate. The fish is the same story. Jesus says, I'm going to cast my net into a big sea, and there's going to be different types of fish there. And I'm going to be happy to pull all the fish in at once so I can get as big of a catch as I can. And I won't worry about separating them until I see what's in the boat. Because I want a big harvest. I'm not willing to lose a single fish. I'm not willing to lose a single grain of wheat. He says, I'm the king, 
but I'm not going to risk the true followers to make examples of the false ones. He says, you can trust me, though, because there is coming a day, the end of the age, he says, the harvest time, where I will exact justice. Do not think that my wisdom and my patience is equal to my weakness. I am doing what I'm doing for the sake of the wheat, but I will, I will gather the weeds, I will gather the tares, and they will be cast into a fire, which is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Don't, ex- don't confuse Jesus' wisdom and his compassion for weakness. He's telling them, you can trust me. I'm doing what I'm doing for the benefit of my followers, but I will judge all insurrectionists. Anyone who walks in my kingdom and will not bow the knee to me will pay that price. I think it is fun, though, that he says, I do it for the sake of the wheat. Peter, we actually, uh, Pastor Johnny read it this morning. In Second Peter, Peter talks about a similar thing. The, the people uh, that Peter's writing to seem to be confused. Why has Jesus not returned yet? And they're starting to doubt. And Peter writes to them. Let me read to you what he says. Second Peter 3, 8 through 10. He says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. He said, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but, and listen, this is awesome. He says, he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it, all of it will be exposed. You have a God who is patient and kind, not wanting anyone to perish, wanting everyone to come to repentance. But do not mistake his kindness and his patience with his weakness. God says, you can trust me. Jesus says, you can trust me. I am a king. I will not allow rebels in my kingdom. How do you apply this? How do you apply these parables to our lives? There's one that should scream out to us. One thing that I think immediately we're asking ourselves, am I a wheat or am I a weed or a tear? Am I a good fish or a bad fish? When that day comes and Jesus calls me into account, what will be my destiny? I was involved in Campus Crusade. I worked for Campus Crusade for a year in Australia, and we had, as part of how we talked to people about Jesus, we had two questions we asked over and over and over. These two questions, um, we, we shortened them with, if die, how high, and if die, why? The, the big, long question is, if, if you were die, to die tonight, something happened on your way home, and you don't make it all the way there, you die, how sure are you, on a scale of 1 to 100, what percentage of confidence do you have that you would go to heaven? And then we asked a follow-up question. If you were to die tonight and you stand before Jesus and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? What would you say? I've probably been in hundreds, hundred, 
ish, not thousands, but a hundred dorm rooms and ask this question. And the vast majority of the people give me the same answer. The vast majority of the people I ask, if you were to die tonight, what, how confident are you that you would go to heaven? Most people say somewhere between 50 and 85%. I feel pretty good about my chances. I said, well, why? If you were to die and Jesus said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And they said, well, I've, been, I've lived a pretty good life. I've done pretty good. And that's why they're only 85, because they know, well, I haven't done all good. But they're hoping that their good outweighs the bad, and God will say, I'll let you in. If we've learned anything from the book of Matthew, he says that is the answer of a weed. Jesus is not impressed with our righteousness. He didn't come for the righteous, but for those who were sick. He came, he's the doctor. He came for the unrighteous. The coolest thing about the Bible is it is written so that you can say, I am 100% sure what will happen to me when I am die. You can say, you can leave here tonight and say, I came in here at 50 and I left 100%. And the answer is simple. The reason you can be 100% is, yeah, I'm going to get in on righteousness, but not my own. I can get in because I wasn't 100% good, but Jesus was on my behalf and he died on my behalf. So I can walk out of here tonight knowing 100% what will happen to me on that day. I don't have to wait and guess, am I going to be the one that's tossed back into the water or into the fire, or am I going to be the one that's kept? I can know that. That's why the Bible was written, so that you can know that you have eternal life. I think, we're going to go on through these parables, but the most important thing I can say tonight is, I'm going to say it right now, you should not leave this room tonight if you're not 100%. If you came in thinking, I'm 80%, don't settle for 80. Walk out of here 100%. I'll talk to you tonight, and I'd no greater honor than to stay here all night long telling you how you could be 100%. I know that Pastor Eddie and Pastor Johnny would say the same thing. Don't leave here if you wouldn't say 100%. I think it's interesting, though, that Jesus actually gave this parable to his followers, people that were, I think, 100%. And what he was warning them is, you're worried because you see a kingdom, and in that kingdom, it's mixed. There's people who are my followers, but there's also people in the kingdom of darkness, and you're wondering, what's going to happen here? And he's just saying, we trust me? Will you trust me when you go to work and you say, I'm the only person at this job who's a Christian? Jesus is saying, will you trust me there? Will you think, hey, there was a time that I was once in darkness, but now I'm light, right? And that might be the case of somebody that is at your work. You might go to work every day and somebody mock you for being a Christian. So there are people in this world who actually would be delighted to see you fall into sin because you would be just like them. But that might be a person that God has said, I'm going to tarry, I'm going to wait because I don't want to destroy a single wheat. And that's, that's another person I have planned to convert. Maybe I can go into a world that is mixed of wheat and of weeds. And instead of being upset that God has me in this world and hasn't exercised his final authority yet, I can be so thankful that first he was patient with me. He didn't destroy me. 
when all I looked like was a tear. He was patient with me. And I might be able to be used to bring somebody else into that fold. Right? I might, God might help me find a person that looks like a bad fish and introduce him to Christ and he could be made a good fish. And his delay, his waiting to judge until the very end is an amazing display of his mercy. Instead of being upset and distraught that I live in a mixed world, I could, I could look at this as an amazing opportunity given to me by an amazingly merciful God. Let's keep walking through our couplets of parables. The next couplet, the next two parables we have are the ones that are talking about the kingdom growing. There's one of a mustard seed, and there's another parable that he talks about leaven, yeast being put into unleavened bread. And the point of these parables are simply to say, it looks small now, but trust me, this kingdom's growing. Let me read them again. It's been just a little bit, and we read a whole lot when we went through it. So let me read these two parables again. They're pretty short. In verse 31, he said, He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed into his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when it's grown, it's taller than the vegetables, and it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman, t- a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until it spread through the, all of it. Saying something that's really, really small, and it's going to get big. I don't know a lot about cooking. And I, think that's, I don't think you have to to understand, especially the second one. When you put just a little bit of yeast into unleavened dough, that yeast spreads out until it's all leavened. It's all yeast. It's taken over the whole thing. And Jesus says, that's what my kingdom is going to do. You look around you and you see nobody. There's 12 little disciples who have followed me around a sea of people who are rejecting him. And he says, trust me, my kingdom starts small, but it's growing. It's going to grow. I, I, I kind of wonder... If you, could, if you could take a time machine to those guys and bring them back and just bring them back right now into McClinney, Florida and say, look at the world, what would they think? I mean, granted, the technology would blow them away, but what would they think about the kingdom of heaven? In this room tonight, there are probably more followers, legitimate followers of Jesus that were in this whole crowd of people that were listening to him. The 12 disciples would think, what, Jesus could save 100 people? We only had 12. He's multiplied us 10 times. And we would say, oh, no, we're just one congregation of thousands, thousands upon thousands all over the world. That had to blow their mind. 12 people following Jesus. He says, now I'm going to spread throughout the whole world. There are churches all over the entire world of people who are following Jesus. Imagine you drive downtown Jacksonville, and you say, here's Baptist Hospital, St. Vincent's. These are hospitals that were created by people who were following Jesus, members of the kingdom, because they wanted to minister to the world. And they thought, the church could fund this? The church could do this? The church could reach out and minister to the world? We were only 12 people. And said, oh, that's nothing. That's nothing. We have care centers, pregnancy centers. We have missionaries all over the world. 
We're taking care of women. We take care of children. We have food banks. I mean, Jesus' church has revolutionized the world. Almost the whole educate, the fact that education exists at all is because really Christians decided we have to teach people to read so they can access God's word. The world has been completely transformed by followers of Christ. And I think that these guys, if they could come and see that, would be like, wow, I had no idea how big that tree could grow. A little seed has grown into this amazing tree. I don't think it's done growing. I read an article yesterday, but it was a year old. It was an article, and it was writing about China. And let me find it so I get my dates exactly right here. In 1949... There were one million Protestant Christians in China. China is a closed country. It's illegal to be a Christian there, but there were still a million. In 2010, so a little over almost 60 years, there were 58 million Christians. The article says if the current rate of growth continues, China will overtake the United States as having the largest Christian population in the entire world. It'll be larger than the United States and Mexico, all of South America, in a world that's completely close to the gospel. Isn't that wild? Every knee will bow and every tongue, every tongue means everybody who speaks in a language, right? Every language group that there is, they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord over the entire world. Jesus, my tree was small. The seed is small, but it is going to grow into something that you cannot possibly fathom. That is awesome. And I don't don't even know how much more he plans to do, but I am confident he's still doing things. He is still growing his church, and he's still letting us be a part of it. It's amazing. He says, will you trust me? You feel when you walk out and you see that I'm one, a sea of people who don't believe. He says, will you just trust me that I can do a whole lot with just a little? Will you trust me that I can take 12 guys and end up changing the entire world? If I could do that, can't I do, can't I use you in your workplace? Can't I use you in your school? Can you trust me that when you're one of a sea, around a sea of people who don't believe and are hostile, will you trust me that I can still use you? Will you trust me that my kingdom is, will advance even when it looks like all the odds are stacked against it? That was hard for the disciples. It should be laughingly easy for us because we've seen him do it for 2,000 years of keeping his promise. 2,000 years of spreading his gospel to the ends of the earth. Just on a side note, I think uh, one thing that's encouraging to me as well is that he, though the church is now big and it's grown, I don't think God has changed his strategy of using small people and small groups to reach the world. One of my, 
I think foolish thinking, especially in high school and in colleges, I would always see celebrities and think, if God would just reach a celebrity, then the whole world, because of how powerful and how great they are. And then I started studying the Bible and said, well, that's just not how God worked. Right? It was the powerful and the great that God didn't use. They rejected him. God used people that were, um, Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, right? His disciples were fishermen, tax collectors, and he used them to change the world. God has made it his business to use the weak to shame the strong. And I think that that is very encouraging, especially if you consider yourself one of the weak. Not the smartest, not the strongest. I don't have any many followers on Twitter. <laughs> and God says, I don't really care. <laughs> because it's not my kingdom that he's building, it's his. And he can do it through me and through people that know that I can't do it on my own. That's awesome. That's awesome. Let's go to the last couplet, the last two parables. There's a parable on this treasure, and there's a parable on this pearl of great price. I love these. I'll read them to you. We're starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's buried in a field that a man found, and he reburied it. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And when he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had, and he bought it. And I think Jesus is asking his disciples, will you trust me? that the reward of following me is worth every bit of the sacrifice? Will you trust me that the reward outweighs all the sacrifice? When you sell everything you have to go buy a field, and you can do that in joy, you must think what's in that field is very, very valuable. Right? When you sell everything that you have in order to buy a pearl, you must think that pearl is worth a whole lot. In other words, Jesus says, the sacrifices that you will make for following me are a great trade. That's a great trade. Ken and I had a really good trade not long ago. When we got married, she had a uh, 1999 Toyota Camry. That was, it was a nice car. It's nice, is dependable, right? It was a dependable car, but it wasn't pretty anymore. It, it was old. It had, it had a lot of miles on it, but it was dependable, and we were happy with it, and she loved it. It had some sentimental value. But when we found out that uh, Dorothy was on her way, my mom and dad offered to trade. And they said that if we gave them the Camry or sold it and gave them the money for it, then they would give us their 2007 minivan. Kia Sedona, and I thought, let me think about it. I've made my decision. <laughs> it, was a no bra- it was one of those no-brainers, right? It was one of those no-brainers where I'm like, okay, I'm going to give you a car with a lot of miles, and it's beat up and has some dents on it for a van that's new, and can, we can stretch out and have the DVD players. When Dorothy cries, I can make her get quiet. It was an easy decision. And Jesus is saying, that's what it's like to follow me. 
It's one of those no-brainer decisions. Yes, it is a sacrifice. Yes, there's some things to give up. But if you understand the value of what you get in return, it's almost a joke to call it a sacrifice. It's almost a joke. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that it's not really hard to live in a world that's at war between two kingdoms. Right? Jesus is saying, my kingdom has invaded the kingdom of darkness. And so you need to expect that's going to come at a price. That's going to come with some cost. You don't go to war without there being some damage that happens. You should expect that my enemies will be your enemies. You should should expect that people that hate Jesus will hate Jesus' followers. Right? He's not calling you to an easy life here. But he's saying it'll be worth it. The reward is so great. You would sell everything you had and consider it a joy to get the kingdom. That's how great it is. And, and don't confuse me here. It's not that the sacrifices are what buy the kingdom, right? It's not that by me making these sacrifices, I earn the kingdom. He's just saying, if I'm going to join the kingdom, if I'm going to be a member of God's kingdom, I can expect conflict from the kingdom that he's at war with. And he's saying, and that's worth it. That's absolutely worth it. There is a missionary named David Livingston who, neat guy, one of the, one of the early missionaries who goes to Africa, and he spends his, his life as a missionary in Africa. In 1857, he comes back and he gives a lecture at Cambridge University. And in that lecture, he's talking to the students to address what people perceive as the sacrifices of leaving educated England to go into tribal Africa as a missionary. And he says it wasn't a sacrifice. In fact, let me read to you his words, because I think, man, he gets it. He says this, for my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I had made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is it a sacrifice? What brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? It says, away with such a word and such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather that it's my privilege. Anxiety and sickness and suffering or danger now and then with foregoing the common conveniences and charities of this life, they might, they might make us pause. It might even cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All of these are nothing when compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. He says, I never made a sacrifice. I think, I think that's awesome, first of all, missionary in Africa. But I think he says that because he understands the value of being in Christ's kingdom. Is being associated with Christ, what luxury would I not give up happily to follow Christ? Health, finances, big savings account. Retirement, those are trifles compared to eternity with God in heaven. What a joy. What a joy to give them up freely. I wouldn't hold a single thing back 
to be known as his and in his kingdom. I just will try to apply that. I think recently, especially in the news, there's been a lot of fear about what's happening to Christians politically, particularly with um, some political stances. If you're not for certain political views, then what if we lose our um, nonprofit status? Or what if pastors are shut down or arrested or fined? Or what, what if companies lose their business? Those are real sacrifices. And I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying to not use your vote to prevent them if you can. That said, wouldn't I happily endure all that and more for the sake of being faithful to Christ? Wouldn't I say with David Livingston that the government cannot do anything to me which would not be a joy to be counted as one of God's? The government's impotent next to the glory and greatness of God. We have very, very little to fear. So Jesus tells, tells us these six principles and all of these six parables, and all of them are just to teach us to trust them. He says, trust me. When you look around and there's not a single Christian that you see, everybody seems at war with God, and you wonder, is, is Jesus going to be the king to deal with these people? He says, trust me. I will deal with them, but I'm patient because I want to not destroy a single grain of wheat. When you say, I'm surrounded by non-Christians and I don't feel like there's anything I can do, we say, he says, will you trust me? Will you trust me that I can use you? Will you trust me that I can grow my church even when the odds look stacked against me? When it looks like following him is going to cost us way too much, my money, my health, my conveniences, Jesus says, will you just trust me? Will you trust me that the rewards outweigh all the sacrifices? There's one last parable here. Some scholars even debate if it's a parable because it doesn't fit in with the couplets, but I think it is. I'll read it in verses 51 and 52. Jesus says, did you understand all these things? And I think boldly they say yes, which I think seems bold. But he says, therefore, every student of the scripture instructed in the kingdom is like a landowner who brings out of his storeroom what is new and what is old. And when he had finished these parables, he left there. This is maybe the hardest parable of them all to understand here. What do you mean? I think what Jesus is saying, I think what this parable means is that a collector has this most valuable collection when he has a complete collection saying, if I'm a collector, I want to have the old things and the new things. Not just the old ones, not just the new ones. I want the complete collection. And I think his point is that a lot of people are missing Jesus because they only have part of the collection. So what they expected is they expected a king to come in, and they expected a kingdom to come in immediately. And this kingdom was going to come in by force and it was going to take over Rome. It was going to set Israel free and everybody would be happy. And if anybody objected, it'd be off with their heads. That's what they expected. And Jesus says, that's not the way the kingdom is going to work. He says, they had some of the view, but they didn't have the whole view. 
They didn't understand at all. And so because their collection was incomplete, because their knowledge was incomplete, they weren't able to understand what was going on in the world that they were living in. And Jesus says, if you will listen to my parables and not just listen to them, respond rightly, if you will be able to trust me, that I will rightly respond to the people who set themselves as my enemies. If you will trust me that I will grow a kingdom when it looks like nobody else will follow. And if you'll trust me that all of the sacrifices that you make on my behalf will be worth it. That is a valuable collection. That will take you through this life. That's what they don't have. That's what the Jews who read their Old Testament but didn't understand Jesus, they didn't understand the fullness of what he came to do. Their partial collection calls them, at least in part, calls them to miss the significance of what Jesus was doing. But he says, now if you will understand the whole thing, what a blessing you have. It can take you through all of your life with joy. In just a second, I want to pray to close. Um, I like to review every time I speak just some practical ways of how are we going to respond to God's word. So what am I going to do this week to show God that I listen and I want to be not just a hearer but a doer? And the first most important thing is I want to take you back to those, that separation at the end of the age when he separated the fish the good fish from the bad fish, or the wheat from the tares, or the wheat from the weeds. And I want everybody in this room to ask themselves, if I were to die tonight, how sure am I that I would spend eternity with Jesus in heaven? There is nothing more important than you could do than leave here saying 100%. And that is freely offered to you tonight. Freely offered to you. In fact, some of our elementary students have learned this week how they can show you that you can know for sure. It's easy. It's just trusting. Let us, let us talk to you about that tonight. There's another big application. All of this was wrapped into, if you're a believer, you're already 100% sure, the big thing he wants us to do is just to trust him. But I think specifically, he wants us to trust him in the face of a world that doesn't believe. And so what I want to ask us to think about is how are we interacting with a world that doesn't believe? And I'll ask you, and I'm asking myself too, how many people do I know and interact with that are not followers of Jesus? And have I put myself in a position where that I can share the gospel with them? Can I tell them God has tarried, he has waited to come back so that you will not be destroyed, you will not perish, but that you might repent? Have I, made, have I trusted Christ to think that he could use me even when I feel unusable, especially in the realm of talking to people who don't know him? So let me make that our two big ones. You might have a hundred more in your mind that you need to apply, but two big ones is if you don't know Christ tonight, if you don't know 100%, will you get that right before you leave? If you do know Christ tonight, will you trust him to step out in faith and deal with a world that is hostile to him in hopes that he can use you to reach a lost and a dying world? Let me pray.
Dear Lord, your stories and your word are gripping and vivid and excite our souls. It's amazing to look at what you've already done in the world against such odds. But so easily, it's so easy for us to forget that uh, you can do it again in our lives. I ask for myself and I ask for everyone in here that you use this message and this passage to expand our faith and our trust in you. Teach us to not only know in our heads, but to believe it deeply in our hearts that you can use us to absolutely